Welcome to Tent Talk, the podcast with Nancy McCready, where we talk about life under the big tent of God's presence and the provoking process of discipleship. Here we go. Hey everybody, welcome to Tent Talk. This is Nancy McCready. What Jesus did by the shedding of his blood and his finished work on the cross is enough for every person for all time. It is the greatest one-off ever. Join me as I share from Watchman Nee's classic study on the normal Christian life over this range of episodes. How can we remain average if we have truly embraced our salvation? Take a listen, and I pray you will share these with everyone that you can and encourage them to take a listen to one off the reading and the sharing of Watchman Nee's The Normal Christian Life All right, as promised, here we go. The Cross of Christ, Chapter 2, The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. Come on, decide to live like a normal Christian, to live as Christ. So let's look into the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Here we go. We have seen that Romans 1 to 8 falls into two sections, in the first of which we are shown that the blood deals with what we have done, while in the second we shall see that the cross deals with what we are. Now, make note, the author uses the cross here and throughout these studies in a special sense. Most readers will be familiar with the current use of the expression, the cross, to signify, firstly, the entire redemptive work accomplished historically in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus himself, Philippians 2, 8 and 9. And secondly, in a wider sense, the union of believers with him therein through grace, Romans 6, 4, Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Clearly in that use of the term, the operation of the blood in relation to forgiveness of sins, as dealt with in chapter 1, is from God's viewpoint included with all that follows in these studies as a part of the work of the cross. In this and the following chapters, however, the author is compelled, for lack of an alternative term, to use the cross in a more particular and limited doctrinal sense in order to draw a helpful distinction namely that between substitution and identification, as being, from the human angle, two separate aspects of the doctrine of redemption. Thus the name of the whole is of necessity used for one of its parts. The reader should bear in mind what follows. So that was an editorial note literally in the written text of the scripture. That was an actual editorial note written as a footnote in the actual text of chapter 2. So now I resume in the regular text of chapter 2. We need the blood for forgiveness. We need also the cross for deliverance. We have dealt briefly above with the first of these two, and we shall move on now to the second. But before we do so, we will look for a moment at a few more features of this passage which serve to emphasize the striking difference of theme and subject matter between the two halves. Some further distinctions. Two aspects of the resurrection are mentioned in the two sections in chapters 4 and 6. 
In Romans 4.25, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is mentioned in relation to our justification. Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Here the matter in view is that of our standing before God. But in Romans 6.4, the resurrection is spoken of as imparting to us new life with a view to a holy walk. That like as Christ was raised from the dead, so we also might walk in newness of life. Here the matter before us is behavior. Again, peace is spoken of in both sections in the 5th and 8th chapters. Romans 5 tells of peace with God, which is the effect of justification by faith in His blood. Being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This means that now that I have forgiveness of sins, God will no longer be a cause of dread to me. I who was an enemy to God have been reconciled through the death of His Son, Romans 5.10. I very soon find, however, that I am going to be a great cause of trouble to myself. There is still unrest within, for within me there is something that draws me to sin. There is peace with God, but there is no peace with myself. There is, in fact, civil war in my own heart. This condition is well depicted in Romans 7, where the flesh and the spirit are seen to be in deadly conflict within me. But from this, the argument leads in chapter 8 to the inward peace of a walk in the spirit. The mind of the flesh is death, because it is enmity against God. But the mind of the spirit is life and peace. Romans 8, 6, and 7. Looking further, still we find that the first half of the section deals, generally speaking, with the question of justification. You can see, for example, Romans 3, 24 through 26, Romans 4, 5, and 25. While the second half has as its main topic the corresponding question of sanctification. See Romans 6, 19 and 22. When we know the precious truth of justification by faith, we still know only half of the story. We still have only solved the problem of our standing before God. As we go on, God has something more to offer us, namely the solution of the problem of our conduct and the development of thought in these chapters serves to emphasize this. In each case, the second step follows from the first, and if we know only the first, then we are still leading a subnormal Christian life. How then can we live a normal Christian life? How do we enter upon it? We must, of course, initially have forgiveness of sins. We must have justification. We must have peace with God. These are our indispensable foundation. But with that basis truly established through our first act of faith in Christ, it is yet clear from the above that we must move on to something more. So we see that objectively the blood deals with our sins. The Lord Jesus has borne them on the cross for us as our substitute and has thereby obtained for us forgiveness, justification, and reconciliation. But we must now go a step further in the plan of God to understand how He deals with the sin principle in us. The blood can wash away my sins, but it cannot wash away my old man. It needs the cross to crucify me. The blood deals with the sins, but the cross must deal with the sinner. 
You will scarcely find the word sinner in the first four chapters of Romans. This is because there the sinner himself is not mainly in view, but rather the sins he has committed. The word sinner first comes into prominence only in chapter 5, and it is important to notice how the sinner is there introduced. In that chapter, a sinner is said to be a sinner because he is born a sinner, not because he has committed sins. The distinction is important. It is true that often when a gospel worker wants to convince a man in the street that he is a sinner, he will use the favorite verse, Romans 3.23, where it says that all have sinned. But this use of the verse is not strictly justified by the scriptures. Those who so use it are in danger of arguing the wrong way around. For the teaching of Romans is not that we are sinners because we commit sins, but that we sin because we are sinners. We are sinners by constitution, by nature rather than by action. As Romans 5.19 expresses it, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made or constituted sinners. How were we constituted sinners? By Adam's disobedience. We do not become sinners by what we have done, but because of what Adam has done and has become. I speak English, but am not thereby constituted an Englishman. I am, in fact, a Chinese. So chapter 3 draws our attention to what we have done. All have sinned. But it is nevertheless not because we have done it that we become sinners. I once asked a class of children, Who is a sinner? And their immediate reply was, one who sins. Yes, one who sins is a sinner, but the fact that he sins is merely the evidence that he is already a sinner. It is not the cause. One who sins is a sinner, but it is equally true that one who does not sin, if he is of Adam's race, is a sinner too and in need of redemption. Do you follow me? There are bad sinners and there are good sinners. There are moral sinners and there are corrupt sinners but they are all alike sinners. We sometimes think that if only we had not done certain things, all would be well. But the trouble lies far deeper than in what we do. It lies in what we are. A Chinese may be born in America and be unable to speak Chinese at all, but he is a Chinese for all that because he was born a Chinese. It is birth that counts. So I am a sinner because I am born in Adam. It is a matter not of my behavior, but of my heredity, my parentage. I am not a sinner because I sin, but I sin because I come of the wrong stock. I sin because I am a sinner. We are apt to think that what we have done is very bad, but that we ourselves are not so bad. God is taking pains to show us that we ourselves are wrong, fundamentally wrong. The root trouble is the sinner. He must be dealt with. Our sins are dealt with by the blood, but we ourselves are dealt with by the cross. The blood procures our pardon for what we have done. The cross procures our deliverance from what we are. Wow. Once again, I am I think I myself am about to get saved again. And again, the truth of the gospel, the core, basic, foundational truth 
of our salvation. My friends, our problem was inherited from Adam. It is not personal. As long as the enemy keeps you operating in the personal realm, therefore you will keep trying to improve personally. And that is the absolute total wrong context of our salvation. Stay with me as I continue to share in the next episode from Chapter 2, The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. For more information on Nancy, please visit nancymccrady.com or follow her on social media at nbmccrady.